welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. Thank you again for joining us for another edition of Tales to Terrify. We're still heading east to our new home, and this will be the first stop of two in my home state of Ohio. Peter, one of our editors, lives around here too. We have lots of places that we could visit and talk about, like the defunct Mansfield Penitentiary of Shawshank Redemption, the movie, that is, fame. The tale of the melon heads roaming the Buckeye State's forests, the story of the town Munchkinland way down by Cincinnati, the terrifying lore around the Gore Orphanage, or even the sprinkling of serial killers that came from the great state of Ohio, including Jeffrey Dahmer, who spent a bit of time attending the Ohio State University. However, we'll be talking about a place in Summit County and Boston Township. But before we get to that, some things about fiction. Amazon just published its 2014 Best Books of the Year Top 100 list. Unfortunately for us, our genre didn't find much representation there. Stephen King's Revival, a novel, comes in at number 6. Anne Rice's Prince Lestat comes in at number 47. However, Goodreads still has its voting open for its books of 2014, and there is a link in the show notes specifically to the horror category. As of this recording, there are 10 books in the final round, Anne Rice's Prince Lestat, Jonathan Mayberry's Code Zero, Larry Correa's Monster Hunter Nemesis, John Connolly's The Wolf in Winter, M.R. Carey's The Girl with All the Gifts, Dean Kuntz's The City, Jennifer McMahon's The Winter People, James Rollins and Rebecca Cantrell's Innocent Blood, Scott Siegler's Pandemic, Josh Mallerman's Bird Box. This episode should be airing right on the 21st, and voting should continue until the 24th, so you've got a few days to get your votes in, if you're a Goodreads user, that is. Helltown. Any kid growing up in the great state of Ohio with her ear to the ground will have heard of Helltown. All of the terrible things that can exist in the empty spaces between warm pockets of civilization are said to live there. Mutants, devil worshippers, haunted cemeteries, a large collection of abandoned buildings, and talk of a government conspiracy to cover it all up. You need one of those conspiracies for good measure. I have to imagine that at least a few creative writing projects for high schoolers have been based in Helltown. This is a creepy place. But we stopped here to hear a story or two, didn't we? Let's get on to that. Our first story will be Allison Littlewood's The Empty Spaces, It was first published in issue 16 of Black Static. Allison Littlewood was raised in Penistone, South Yorkshire, and went on to attend the University of Northumbria at Newcastle, now Northumbria University. Originally, she planned to study graphic design, but missed the words too much and switched to a joint English and history degree. She followed a career in marketing before developing her love of writing fiction. She now lives near Wakefield, West Yorkshire, with her partner, Fergus. 
A Cold Season from Joe Fletcher Books was Allison's first novel. It was selected for the Richard and Judy Book Club, where it was described as perfect reading for a dark winter's night. Her second novel, Path of Needles, was a dark blend of crime and fairy tales. Allison's short stories have been picked for the Best Horror of the Year and the Mammoth Book of Best New Horror Anthologies, as well as the Best British Fantasy 2013 and Mammoth Book of Best British Crime Number 10. Other publication credits include the anthologies Terror Tales of the Cotswolds, Where Are We Going, and the charity anthology Never Again. And now, let's take a look into those empty spaces. When Laurie Turner said he saw Marilyn Monroe in our sitting room, I thought he was a fool, and I told him so. But it was the more fool me, as it turned out, because that's exactly what he did see. Marilyn, pouting with her reddened lips, and her white dress billowing out so that it almost brushed the television. Just because she wasn't there doesn't mean he didn't see her. That's what the doctor said. He said it was Charles Bonnet syndrome, named after the naturalist who discovered it. Laurie nodded, as though he was glad to find out it was a thing he had, and not just old age and madness. It was me who had to ask what it meant. It occurs when there's a natural impediment to the vision, the doctor said, leaning back against the counter, getting ready for an exposition. It could be from a cataract or macular degeneration. I glanced at Laurie. He had both, and you could at least see the cataract. A milky white patch covered most of his left eye, like a patch of foam floating across the sea. No point in operating, they said, not with the degeneration too, spreading its darkness like something swimming up from beneath. Our minds fill in the gaps, the doctor continued. They do it all the time, actually. We can't see nearly as much as we think we can. The eyes take in what they may, and our minds fill in the spaces to give us a view of the world. They're used to doing it. Sometimes, when a person develops a blind spot, like Mr. Turner here, they work a little too hard at filling in, and so we see things that aren't there. A person that isn't really in the room, maybe. I heard of someone once who thought the Eiffel Tower stood next to his bed. His voice went far away. It explains a lot, actually, about people who have visions. See the Virgin Mary in a fountain, perhaps, or fairies at the bottom of the garden. Of course, it can be frightening, too. Sometimes our minds make up things that aren't so nice. You're lucky you got Marilyn. I laughed, but Laurie didn't. He shifted in his seat. If you see anything else, just remember... It's only a vision from your mind filling in a space it's not used to seeing. That's all. I saw Joan once, said Laurie on the way home. I had asked the doctor to call us a taxi and helped Laurie inside. He was older than me by three years, although he had married the younger sister. Did you? I said. I couldn't think of anything else. She smiled at me. She looked like she did when we first got married, all dressed in white and surrounded by flowers. I thought it was odd, the flowers just hanging around her like that, 
I remember thinking how pretty she was. They were pretty, weren't they, Bill? But then her mouth moved. I tried to hear what she was saying. I really did. But there wasn't any sound. My wife Alice had been Joan's sister, older by a couple of years, and light-haired where Joan was dark. And he was right, they were pretty. But Joan, if anything, had been prettier, her skin more fresh, her eyes sparkling. But it was Alice I loved, all the same. Alice who was bigger and heartier and jollier, and had a laugh like a freight train rumbling through a tunnel. That's what I used to say to her, and she'd laugh some more. Now there was only Laurie and me. No relation, not really. But we shared a house anyway. Some ties are thicker, he'd said, when he pressed me to move in. And an old goat like me can't be trusted on his own. He let out a dry sputter of a laugh that wasn't really funny. Her mouth turned mean, he said, and turned to me. I shook my head. What? She, she looked mean, he said, like she had come to say she hated me. Do you think that's true, Bill? Do you think she hates me wherever she is? Do you think they blame us? It had been a long time ago, and I didn't want to think of it. I shook my head violently, feeling the cords in my neck popping. You're filling in the gaps, like the doctor said. You're filling in a gap that wasn't there. Out of your head... It wasn't even her. We rode home in silence. I stared at the taxi driver's back, wondering how much he'd heard. I tried not to look at Laurie, although I could see silver lines falling from his eye. It was his right one, the one without the cataract. His right eye, and it was dark. She's here, Laurie said. He had woken me, shouting in his sleep, and when I went into his room he was shaking. She's here. No, Laurie, you're dreaming. It wasn't even a vision. You were asleep. He thrashed his head from side to side. I wasn't asleep. I was lying here, wondering if we should walk down to the wagon tomorrow, just once more. That's when she came, Bill, as if she heard me thinking it. Do you think she did? I patted his shoulder, as one might pat a dog. I don't think so, Laurie. You know what this is now. The doctor told you. There's no need to worry, and no need to think about those things. How does he know, Bill? Laurie sat up suddenly, his eyes wide open and staring. One light, one dark. How does he know that what I'm seeing isn't real, and what you're seeing is? Our minds fill in the gaps, I thought. We can't see nearly as much as we think we can. She might be real, Bill. A space in the vision. It might just give us room to see things other people can't. How do we know they're not real? It took me a moment to answer. Marilyn Monroe, Laurie? You really think Marilyn Monroe was in our front room? All the tension went out of him in a rush, and he fell back onto the pillow. I thought he was settled then, but as I left the room, he spoke. 
Why not, Bill? She has to be somewhere, doesn't she? Lloyd's words ran through my mind as I tried to sleep. I was thinking about walking down to the wagon just once more. Do you think she heard me? I remembered the last time we went to the wagon. We were younger then, much younger. It was long before we shared a house, but not long after we'd both got married. We lived on the same street then, and not far from the pub. We'd been there by seven, after the girls caught the train for the city. We had waved them off. They tried to lean out of the train window, but the slot was too narrow. They were laughing, but we couldn't hear them over the sound of the train. Both had their party dresses on and their hair curled, one light, one dark, like Laurie's eyes. Right pretty, I told Alice. You're right pretty. And she had hugged me there on the platform. Their lips were red, done in the same lipstick, sisters to the end. A friend of theirs was having a do, a hen party they call it now, before she got married. Women only, Alice had said firmly. You can't come, Bill, not this time. And so we thought we'd have a party of our own. Just the two of us, before we met them from the train. Do you think I don't hear her because my hearing's perfect, Bill? I was scanning the paper, reading the interesting bits out loud. What? I can see her because my vision's going. It leaves a space she can walk into. Do you think I can't hear her because my hearing isn't? Because there's no gap for my brain to fill in? Maybe. I rustled the paper in my hands. Something else I didn't want to talk about. I saw a funeral out the window this morning. Did you? Whose? I looked out at the lane, seeing only foxgloves nodding in the breeze. No, I saw one. A procession, anyway. Joan was there, sitting in a carriage, looking at me. It was that kind of funeral, an old-fashioned kind. Carriages and black horses with plumes on their heads. He paused. The day I hear them as well as see them, Bill, that's when I'll know they've come. For me, I mean, to take me away. I shook my head and bent closer to the newspaper. I could see the print as clear as anything. We never met them from the train. That's why it happened. We left a space, a vacancy, an emptiness. Something he could walk into, with no one to stop him. I screwed up my eyes. I didn't want to think of this. It was as though I could see her face, tear-streaked maybe, her mouth open, crying, screaming, while he did that to her. How would I know? I could never know. I shifted my thoughts to something else. Found the wagon. It was warm inside, I remember that. Laurie and me, we were warm all night. Not like her, left as she was at the side of the lane. The pub was warm. 
everything glowing orange from the fire. We started on beer, but shifted to whiskey, and soon we were glowing inside too. It was Laurie's idea that. He enjoyed whiskey, liked the burn of it, like punishment and pleasure all at once, he'd say, and give one of those sputtering laughs. There were girls in there, from the village over the tops, trying out the area, they said. Trying out the area, as though it were a new frock. They were both short and frazzle-headed, and one was rather dumpy. It can't hurt, said Laurie, nudging me in the ribs. It's only talking, just for a while. We took the seats next to theirs. It was a bit cheeky, I thought, that was all. Because I loved Alice, and she knew I loved her, and soon I'd be curled up around her in our bed, keeping each other warm. This was just a laugh, something Laurie and I could wink over later. It wasn't as though anything was going to happen. We bought one of them a G&T and the other a rum and coke. I don't remember their names, only their drinks. G&T snuggled up to Laurie, and rum and coke looked at me and giggled. Her eyes were glassy. I think all our eyes were glassy. That's when the barman clanged the bell for last orders. Time to drink up, go home, time to meet the train. Then he said something about a lock-in. Laurie winked at me over G&T's head. We'll stay a bit longer then, he said. What about the train? We'll be a bit late. It's not far home from the station anyway. It'll be all right. I distinctly remember him saying that. It'll be all right. I stayed and had another drink, and another. It was the last time either of us would drink like that, and the last time we ever went to the wagon, although it's still there, down the hill towards the river. Yes, it's still there. And all the time I put the glass to my lips, I told myself that nothing was wrong, that Alice was fine, that she'd be waiting for me at home, that everything would be all right. Laurie stopped telling me about the visions, in the end. I knew he still saw things, but he never told me what they were. I could tell from the way he looked at me, one eye blank, the other confused, as though he were wondering if I was really there. Once he started to say something about a funeral, but I left the room before he could say anything else. I think about that a lot these days, the way he opened his mouth and began, and then clamped it shut. Laurie's gone now. There are no more chances for him to tell me what he saw. At least, I don't think so. One afternoon, I heard music floating down the stairs. I was doing something, reading maybe, or cooking, or at least thinking about it. The first notes of it drifted down, something mournful and sombre. I remember thinking it was good that he'd managed to work the record player by himself. It was something for him to do, to take his mind off the things he could or couldn't see. But the same tune went on and on. It was a sad, slow, steady march of sorrow. 
After a while, I went up to see him, to pass the time of day, to see how he was. And as I went up the stairs, the music faded and was gone. Laurie was dead, of course. They'd come for him, just as he said. Only he wasn't the only one who heard. I set a sheet over his face and looked at the record player. I was surprised to see there was a record on it, but not surprised to see that it was Ella Fitzgerald. I wasn't a fan of Ella, not B, but I knew she didn't sound anything like the music I'd heard. It had been like a thousand clarinets weeping. It was the sound of a funeral march. Like I said, I think about it a lot, about the things we see and the things we don't, empty spaces just waiting to be filled, with good things or with bad, especially since I started hearing things. They played a lot of bleeps at me in the doctor's office. I was supposed to press a button when I heard them, some sort of test. Sometimes my hand jumped on its own, a treacherous, shaking thing, and pressed. Later they told me that sometimes they played a beep and my hand never moved. It just sat there, liver-spotted and useless. But I still hear things, oh yes, the sort of voices Laurie might have heard if his hearing hadn't been perfect, whispering in his ear at night, maybe, or when he was just waking, or in that long, tired stretch of the afternoon before the evening began. But I heard them. I heard Alice and Joan laughing together, like they were still on the train, laughing fit to bust, only now I could hear them clear as day. Joan's high giggle, Alice's booming laugh, hearty and loud, but sort of hollow too, almost like she was heading into a deep tunnel. Sometimes I hear the hay-warm snort of a horse as it nods against the traces. I hear the clip-clopping of hooves on the road. I hear it, but I don't see it. That's how I know I'm safe, I suppose. It's frightening, but I'm safe enough, because I haven't seen their faces yet. That's when I know they've come for me. Come to take me with them. I'll finally see her face, and I'll know. That was Allison Littlewood's The Empty Spaces, as read to us by Rob Haynes. Rob Haynes is a writer, podcaster, and ex-turtle biologist. His podcast fiction can be found at lepariecuisine.blogspot.com. Link will be in the show notes. Our next story will be about a different kind of place than Helltown, Ohio. The story comes to us from Daniel Kaysen, and its title not that kind of town. It originally appeared as part of the Shizine magazine in the summer of 2011, but is, sadly, no longer available online. Daniel Kaysen's short fiction has appeared in print magazines Black Static and Interzone, and on the web at Shizine, Strange Horizons, and Idiomancer, among others. The link to his delightfully minimalist webpage will be in the show notes. Let's take a stroll down some other streets than these. One. It's a quiet place, this, but that's not to be sniffed at. 
You can keep your city and its lights. I like the slower pace of life. I like that not much changes here. The most that ever happens is a car full of youngsters is driven too fast and ends up hitting a tree or a lamp post. Then the victim's friends and family mark the spot with flowers and cellophane taped to the bark or the metal. They write with passionate certainty on the cards attached, never to be forgotten and gone to a better place. I like those shrines and the way they bear witness to how much the dead ones were loved. But other people don't like the shrines, sadly. The reverend says we're not that kind of town, and the council agrees that the flowers are unsightly, and anyway, the dead have proper graves in the cemetery, which will always be kept neat and trim, so the flowers are torn down. After that, only little bits of tape are left to mark the spot where the victims died. Most people don't register them, I'm sure, but I keep my eye on those reminders of the shrines, and I pay my respects. I'm good at noticing little things like that on my wanderings. I was always a wanderer. I wasn't the sort to be given a job, and women didn't look at me and long to be married, so I wandered the town instead. That wasn't popular. It was often suggested I might be so much happier in the city. I'm not daft, though. The city, I know, is dirty and loud, with ten times more traffic and half as many cats. Why would I want to spend my life wandering around that? Much better to be in a town full of familiar faces, even if I didn't get the warmest of welcomes from most of them. I think they were afraid that I would do something terrible, like speak to them, or just smile even, or take off my shoes in the park, and then what would they do? Of course, there were a few people who were kind, who knew I was a gentle chap who would never wish pain on a single living thing. There was a soup kitchen run by some of the nicer ladies and gents from the church, and that was pleasant. But there were also people at the soup kitchen who only pretended to be kind, like the reverend. He would say in a loud voice, Oh, everybody's equal here, and look so pious I nearly choked on my roll, because I never got invited to sit at his table on special occasions, I noticed. And the management, alas, always reserved the right of admission, including that day when they thought I was drunk, but it was actually pneumonia, and I died. Really. The pretending from the reverend stopped then. They quickly buried me in a dingy plot in the coldest corner of the cemetery, somewhere so charmless even I'd never wandered there when I was alive. I got no flowers. Not a single person suggested that I had gone to a better place. And the reverend raced through the words of the funeral service without sincerity. In his heart, he didn't want me to go to heaven. I think he thought I would spoil it for the others. And so I didn't go. 2. It's true. If no one wishes you up to heaven, you stay on earth, bound to your grave. So that's what happened to me. I should have been bitter, probably, but on the other hand, I wasn't sorry to stay behind. 
I mean, I had nothing against God, and I thought maybe it was true what they say about heaven. Perhaps the last really were going to be first, and people with holes in their shoes would enter in and have a wonderful time, while the commuters had to wait, tutting at the end of the queue, instead of barging in everywhere in that pompous way they have. Maybe it's true what the Reverend said about heaven, but I didn't trust him. Better the devil you know, I've always thought. So I sat by the tree in the corner of the cemetery and tried to make the best of it. Of course, sometimes I got lonely. The days were long and the shade was cold and not many people passed my way. And I missed the wandering I used to do. I missed watching the little changes around town. But I was always a resourceful chap, and I was already used to taking life at a slower pace than those around me. Now it was just a question of adjusting to an even slower rhythm of change. So I watched the children that were brought to their grandparents' graves on a Sunday. I watched them grow up and age and have their own children in turn. I watched the new parents' visits get less and less frequent, until one day they had grandchildren, and then they got a grave of their own, and their grandchildren were brought to visit it, and the whole thing started again. I watched that cycle carry on, the graves spreading all up the hillside, and then the cemetery was full. The council had always taken pride on caring for the cemetery, and oh yes, of course, it always would make sure the graves were neat and trim, even long after the cemetery was filled. But promises are funny things. They're only words. And one generation dies, and the next takes over, and then another takes over in turn, with modern ideas and a modern budget for prioritising their resources. The budget didn't include us. So I watched as the grass grew wild and the fences rusted, and one by one the gravestones toppled flat and were forgotten. And then the souls returned to earth from heaven. 3. They came back down. Really? It's what happens when the memorials can't be seen anymore, when no one tends to them. The souls are kicked downstairs again. As it turns out, resources must be prioritised, and there's only so much room in paradise, and management, alas, reserves the right. It wasn't a huge surprise, to me. It was a shock to the souls, though. Golly, yes. They stood there in the wilderness of the cemetery, looking up at the sky in disbelief that they had been ejected, keening and screaming to be let back in. I couldn't live with a noise like that. And because they didn't know where they were, and they had lost all memory of the town, I took it upon myself to sort them out. I'm a charitable man. Plus, now that they were no longer in their better place... I was free at last to wander from my grave. So first I gathered up all those that had made a roadside shrine, or had had a shrine made for them, and I walked them back to where the shrine had been. I left them there. Don't wander, I said, but I knew they wouldn't. It's good to have your family and friends together, so they were content with where I had taken them. It may not have been heaven as such, but they were pleased, I know. 
I tried to help the others, too. The ladies and gents of the soup kitchen I took to the flowered garden at the meeting house. It's pretty there. It was nice to give them that reward for their kindness. And the other members of the town, well, even though they had never been kind to me, I tried to give them a decent place in the world. I told each of them in turn a memory I had of them. To one I said, I remember you used to stand here outside this shop and talk to your friends. To another, you liked to stop by the bridge and watch the water. I walked each of them to their allotted spot, and that is where they stand, still. They do not have their kin around them close, but at least they have a place to be. They do not stray, because I told them not to. I was even kind to the commuters. It wasn't their fault they were pompous. They were born like that, I reckon. I said to them all, I remember you each standing on your favourite bit of the platform. So I took them to the station. It's a kindness I've done them. They must have secretly enjoyed standing there when they were alive, I think, given how very long they spent doing it. Don't move, I told them, and they don't. I almost managed to be nice to the mayor and the councillors too, but I didn't, quite. Instead, I sent them to stand looking at the rubbish tip. They need to be less hasty about what they call unsightly. Maybe they will learn to see beauty there over time. Time is what they have, after all. Stay there, I said. They do. And finally, I had to deal with the reverend. Where do you remember me? He said. Where will I spend my time? I should have been nice to him, I know. They say there is a recording angel who writes down all our sins. But bugger him. 4. It's a quiet place, this, but that's not to be sniffed at. You can keep your city in its lights. I like a town where people will give a wandering man a nod of the utmost respect as he passes. A wandering man and his dog, I should say. Because apart from his public piety and his tearing down of shrines, the reverend was famous for disliking gentlemen of the road with canine friends. Not in my churchyard, he would say. So now I have him on a lead. Poor old reverend on his hands and knees. I tell him to sit, and he does. And he doesn't complain, because of what he's seen in the trees. The thing is, we are not the first set of ghosts in this town. Of course we aren't. Why didn't I guess? Memorials are always forgotten in the end. The dead always come back from heaven. There are so many faces from the past here. Naturally, I don't recognize them, but I recognize the types. I see the commuters of centuries ago waiting at what used to be the stagecoach stop. I see the nice ladies and gents who fed the poor now standing in the meadow. I see the councillors down by the pit where the townsfolk used to chuck their animal bones and their shit. 
I see the victims of accidents standing with their loved ones near where they died. I see the wandering men of times before who have placed these souls so carefully around the town with the same instincts as me. I nod to them as we pass each other in the street. And I see the reverends of years gone by now swinging from the trees, hanged by their dog leads. I guess that means I will get tired of having a dog soon. Maybe so. I've always been more of a cat person, really. Or perhaps the reverend will say something insolent and my patience will snap and he'll end up hanged. I mean, I'm a gentle chap and I would never wish pain on a single living thing, but technically he's not alive. And I've grown rather fond of respect now. In fact, I notice there are other people swinging in the breeze from trees. Ordinary people, not churchmen. I wonder if they were once slow to greet my fellow wanderers with the respect they deserve. Or maybe they just moved a yard or two from where they had been placed in the town. That wouldn't do. That would show a definite lack of respect. I can see why that would be a hangable offence. They only have to be still, after all. How difficult can it be? They even get sunshine, sometimes. That's more than the ghost of the wandering man gets out in the new cemetery. They put his grave in the coldest corner, and he sits there now, watching the years and decades pass. It's nice to know that he'll be back, though. In a few centuries' time, he'll return to town, leading the new crew from heaven. And then the cycle will start over, and the last will be first, and the first will hang from a tree, scrabbling desperately at the leather lead at his neck for all eternity. Because although the hanged are not alive, neither can they die. And the new reverend will try to find breath enough to invoke God and Jesus and all that is holy against me. And then he'll beg for mercy. Oh, hush, I'll say to him, as I say to the other reverends when they try to do the same. I've got nothing against God, but this is not that kind of town. That was Daniel Kaysen's Not That Kind of Town, as read to us by our old friend Matt Cowens. Matt Cowens is a Kapiti, New Zealand-based high school teacher and writer. His writing has been published online and in several anthologies, and Mansfield with Monsters, his collaboration with Debbie Cowens, and the late Catherine Mansfield, is receiving rave reviews in the New Zealand press. It is published by Steam Press and is available on Amazon in bookstores throughout New Zealand or directly from the publisher at www.steampress.co.nz. Link will be in the show notes. And that will be our show for the evening. Next week we'll have one more stop in the great state of Ohio before heading a bit further on our way to our new home. I hope this week finds you well and we'll see you in just a few days for another edition of Tales to Terrify. Mm-hmm.